You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. You may find all your sales and rental equipment needs at McAllister.com. We are pleased to announce our podcast is now a member of the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find Leaders and Legends at AllIndianaPodcastNetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle and me at leadersandlegends.net. Howie Politics and State Affairs Pro offer insider election coverage, polling, and analysis in Indiana. Our nonpartisan news and legislative tools create a winning combination pro subscribers can't live without. For all the resources you need this election season and beyond, visit pro.stateaffairs.com slash in. That's pro.stateaffairs.com slash in. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Mark Updegrove. He is the president and CEO of the LBJ, Lyndon Baines Johnson Foundation, and serves as presidential historian for ABC News. Mr. Updegrove is the author of five books on the presidency, including the one we are discussing today, Incomparable Grace, JFK in the Presidency. Here's one of the reviews. We are lucky that Mark Updegrove has brought us this elegant, concise, knowing, fluent, and highly readable look at John F. Kennedy as president. In these troubled times, JFK's leadership looks better and better in the rearview mirror, and Updegrove here deploys his wise historical judgment to show us the essentials of why. Mr. Updegrove, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. In all of the people I've studied in in history, and you know, a lot of people, you know, like we're celebrating the Queen's seventieth year on the throne, and you had people like Henry V, who was just on for roughly nine years, long, short, ten years. But I don't know that anyone packed as much into such a short time as John F. Kennedy did as president. How, how close or off the mark am I? No, I think you're dead right. It's a, it's a very consequential period, as well as being a very consequential uh, presidency. Uh, so John F. Kennedy has to react to the, the crises that play out during the course of his administration. And he does so, I think, on balance pretty well. Uh, but uh, it, it's not just Kennedy. It's, it's the times he's responding to. Of course, we were at the, the height of the Cold War during Kennedy's time in the White House. We were escalating our, our space program 
uh, with Kennedy's vision to send a man to the moon by the end of the decade. The civil rights movement is beginning to come to a boil, forcing Kennedy to, to respond. Uh, we have the, the Cuban Missile Crisis that comes out of Cold War tensions and on and on and on. So this is, this is incredibly tempestuous. And John F. Kennedy is in the middle of it all. Seems that the mark of a, a true leader is almost like a quarterback. In other words, he or she comes through and does the right things at the biggest moments. How would you grade John F. Kennedy when it comes to some of the biggest moments of his presidency? I'm thinking particularly three, the building of the Berlin Wall in, I think, 62, the Cuba Missile Crisis in October of 62, and how he approached the conflict in Vietnam? Well, you know, it, I'll go through each of them. And uh, as far as the Berlin Wall goes, it goes up in, in, in August of 1961. And Berlin is perhaps the, the most uh, dangerous spot in the world. In fact, Nikita Khrushchev, the premier of the Soviet Union, called it just that, the most dangerous spot in the world. Of course, we had the didn't he refer Go to ahead, it as, the, as, forgive me, didn't he also refer to it as the West testicles? <laughs> the West testicles, which which he was determined <laughs> to chop off. <laughs> Just uh, all you have to do is squeeze Berlin, squeeze Berlin, and you make the West howl. Sorry, Mark. Go ahead. <laughs> no, that's exactly right. And, and of course, Truman faced that with the Berlin airlift uh, when, when the, the Soviet Union cut off access to West Berlin, and we were determined not to let that deter us. And uh, Harry Truman ordered the Berlin airlift so that supplies could be, could be rained down on the, uh, the Berliners in West Berlin. But, but it becomes this incredibly tense spot because uh, it, it shows the hemorrhaging of, of uh, Eastern uh, East Germans into West Berlin during the, um, before the, 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 uh, wall goes up and uh, it's an embarrassment for the Soviet Union to see so many of the, the citizens in, in the Eastern Bloc fleeing communist tyranny. So they, they need to do something uh, and they, they construct a wall. And uh, I think Kennedy does not react militarily. He lets them do that. In some ways, it solves a problem for John F. Kennedy. So he allows it to happen uh, and doesn't rattle sabers over the uh, over the issue. Although West Berliners are are uh, very angry at the administration for having done that, so I'd, I'd say I'd give I'd give Kennedy uh, high marks on his treatment of that. You mentioned the Cuban Missile Crisis next, Robert, and I would say that you got you have to give Kennedy high marks there again. He uh, resolves this incredibly tense standoff with the Soviet Union peacefully against all odds. The Cuban mass missile crisis, which occurs, as you said, in October of 1962, over 13 harrowing days, is perhaps the most dangerous moment in humankind when there was the distinct possibility of a nuclear exchange between the Soviet Union and the United States of America as the Soviet Union ships Soviet troops and missiles to Cuba, uh, representing the first time that nuclear warheads from the Soviet Union were in the Western Hemisphere, just 90 miles from American shores. Uh, Kennedy uh, doesn't paint himself into a corner. 
He leaves his options open. Uh, he tries not to engage militarily in order not to provoke the Soviet Union, and he gets out of that peacefully when the when the Soviets ultimately back down based on a quid pro quo agreement that the the world wouldn't know about until much later. You withdraw your missiles from Cuba, and we'll withdraw our missiles from Turkey, which is in the backyard of the Soviet Union. So I'd say he gets very high marks for that. Vietnam, on the other hand, you know you you can't give. Uh, Kennedy particularly good marks on Vietnam. Uh, he, he decides that uh, we're going to have to stave off a communist insurgency in Vietnam, continuing a policy more or less put into place by Eisenhower, setting the stage for Lyndon Johnson, who would escalate it much further. There, there's a, a misconception that John F. Kennedy, had he remained in the presidency, would have de-escalated the conflict in Vietnam, but there is no evidence of that whatsoever. And in fact, shortly before he dies, in uh, uh, interviews that he gives in September of uh, 19, uh, 16, uh, uh, excuse me, 1963, um, he says that it would be a deep mistake to withdraw troops from Vietnam and subscribe to the domino theory, which suggested if you yielded to communist insurgency in Vietnam, that other nations might fall like dominoes to communism in in, in turn. So. So I think you have to give him pretty poor marks on Vietnam. This is somewhat off topic, but as a, as an historian, who would you give top marks to with regard to Vietnam? I mean, you anybody know, in any country no at any point of right, time. Right, right. Maybe Eisenhower exactly right. because he didn't, you know, because he kind of resisted in '54 when Dien Bien Phu collapsed. But I mean, has, did anyone do the right thing in Vietnam? No, I don't think I, I don't think any of the presidents who oversaw Vietnam when it was really uh, uh, in full swing, that's John F. Kennedy, Lyndon Johnson and Richard Nixon would get high marks on our, on our handling of Vietnam. You can't really pin anything on Ford. Ford is left with Vietnam by right. by Nixon and does the very best he can to mitigate disaster. But the, the die is already cast by that point. And Saigon Falls, I think, what, 75? 1975 in the in the second year of the Ford presidency. Well, one thing we should say is there's a heck of a lot of people who did the right thing in Vietnam, and that includes one of our previous leaders and legends guests, and that is Medal of Honor recipient Sammy Davis, and someone you know who appeared at one of your seminars, and that is Medal of Honor recipient and former Senator Bob Kerry. Mm -hmm. so we should never overlook the personal courage of the people who served over there. No, and I, Robert, it's just, just it's absolutely disgraceful that so many of those heroes, so many of the men and women called to service in Vietnam were never thanked properly for uh, what they did for our country. When we, when we asked them, ordered them in many cases to go over there, uh, they were simply doing their duty as the commanders in chief uh, asked them to do and uh, came back to hostile receptions in many cases by the American people, which is disgraceful. That's exactly right. My son did two tours in Afghanistan uh, as a combat infantryman in the army and, you know, how he was received when he came back, at least in terms of, of, of the civic reception is night and day compared to what the people received coming back from Vietnam and especially the the black soldiers, sailors and Marines who were over there getting shot at by Vietnamese while their families were being shot at and had the dogs turned on them here in the United States. I don't, I honestly, I don't know how they did it, but mm. 
that's that's another podcast. We'd love to have you back on to talk about that. Uh, speaking of personal courage, I did some research, did a little more reading on John F. Kennedy's time in World War II, and I have to confess, it was a little more heroic than I thought it was. He almost yeah, I, got killed and suffered injuries yeah. that stayed with him for the rest of his life. How did you tackle that in your book? You know, my book covers the, the presidency with a backstory of, of John F. Kennedy before uh, he earns the office in 1960. But I would say you'd have to call him extraordinarily heroic in World War II. There is some uh, controversy as to why Kennedy was in a, a mess in the Pacific to begin with, uh, uh, jeopardizing uh, his, his, his ship, which got, which got hit. Uh, by uh, Japanese destroyers and uh, and his crew, which you know had to swim to shore. But Kennedy, once the crisis occurs, acts with tremendous courage, and uh, he, he he takes one of his crewmen in his teeth. He takes his shirt in his teeth and mm -hmm. literally swims him to shore, ensuring that uh, that uh, that uh, sailor is not left behind. So in that instance. John Fitzgerald Kennedy is a profile in courage. Well, he received a Purple Heart and various other medals, and I, I was I was a little taken aback by how much how much he exerted himself to, like a true leader, like a true officer should, save and provide for his crew for the survivors. His older exactly. brother, they never forgot it. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, and his older brother was killed late in the war, World War II, when a plane he was flying. I think he volunteered for a dangerous mission. And I think the, the, the plane blew up in midair. It wasn't shot down if memory serves. And, and John F. Kennedy kind of famously said he went into politics quote, because Joe died. Do you think that John F. Kennedy would have gone into politics if Joe had lived? Yes, I do. Uh, I think there's no question that Joe Kennedy Jr. was the hope of his father in uh, in becoming president. Uh, Joseph Kennedy Sr. was an extraordinarily ambitious man and, and had designs on the presidency himself, wanted to be the first Catholic president himself. Uh, those, uh, those prospects are more or less scrapped when he takes a very isolationist stand mm -hmm. at the dawn of World War II and uh, uh, at, at a time when he was the, uh, the U.S. ambassador to Great Britain. And that more or less squelches any chances he has of, of uh, becoming involved in politics directly himself. But he, he thrusts those ambitions onto his son, uh, Joe Kennedy Jr. And as you said, Robert uh, Kennedy dies over uh, the, um, you know, dies in Europe as his plane does indeed explode. And I think his father pins his hope on, on the next in line, which is John F. Kennedy. Uh, so those uh, political ambitions that he had for Joe were transferred to Jack, uh, but they also suited Jack. That's the thing that, that I don't think people realize. Jack Kennedy wasn't drafted by his father. Great point. Jack Kennedy himself wanted to go into politics. As, as he says, he wanted to be at the center of the action. And in those days, an opportunity, getting into the center of the action, making a real difference in the world, meant in many cases going into politics. We didn't have the abundance of opportunity 
that we have today. And if you were, if you had any ambitious, if you if you wanted to make your mark on the world, you almost instinctively turned to politics, just as Richard Nixon and Gerald Ford and George Herbert Walker Bush and George McGovern did after serving in World War II. It was almost instinctive that uh, that, that that politics was something you would think about if you had ambitions of those sort. That's a great point about it suited him and his personality came through, obviously, as he moved up the ranks and eventually was elected president in 1960. But along with with his dad, Joe Kennedy's ambition and pride in his family and his sons, there was also the crucial element of money. How much money did the Kennedy family have and how did they spend it not only to elect, obviously, John, but Bobby and Teddy as well? Well, the, the Kennedy patriarch, as I mentioned, Joe Joe Kennedy Sr., amassed uh, a fortune, mostly in the banking industry, uh, also in Hollywood, also bootlegging operations during the uh, d- during Prohibition. So uh, he was probably one of the five wealthiest Americans, uh, and uh, and and that fortune helped to fund the political ambitions that his sons had. Uh, Jack, Bobby, and Ted. Uh, so that was enormously beneficial. Having that Kennedy war chest that you could draw on to get your sons in politics, uh, an advantage that so many others didn't have. When Hubert Humphrey was battling for the the Democratic presidential nomination against Kennedy in 1960, uh, you know, he, he likened the, the Kennedys to the equivalent of a, a Walmart, and he was just a local hardware store. <laughs> was, uh, and it's it's true. They were just they had so much more money and could do so much more. Uh, and as you know, uh, uh, money is the, the mother's milk of politics. Uh, so the Kennedys came at politics with an intrinsic advantage to having the, the money they had. And they also weren't above I don't want to be judgmental here, but let's just say hardball politics. Am I remembering correctly? Didn't didn't the Kennedys bring in Franklin Roosevelt Jr. into the West Virginia primary to allude to the fact that Hubert Humphrey was some sort of draft dodger? They, they, they sure did. And, uh, you know, they used these these dirty tactics in many cases. That was not uncommon at a uh, at a certain day and time. But uh uh, the Kennedys played politics as bare knuckled as anybody did. Uh, that's the nature of the game. It's a it's a tough person's business. The Kennedys were suited for it. You're listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is the president and CEO of the LBJ Foundation and historian for ABC News, presidential historian, Mr. Mark Updegrove. Kennedys elected to Congress in 46, or the House of Representatives in 46, and then he's elected to the Senate, I believe, in 52, the same year that Nixon, Richard Nixon, his rival, is becomes vice president under Dwight Eisenhower. How soon do you think, from the time that he started his run for the House of Representatives, did John F. Kennedy set his sights on the Oval Office? Like, that was the ultimate goal, and these are just steps towards that goal. These are lily pads that he's jumping yeah. 
jumping uh, from in order to get to the ultimate uh, ultimate destination, which is the White House. But yeah, no sooner does he become a representative, as you suggest, Robert, in 1946, that he sets his sight on, sights on the Senate, uh, which he gains in 52, and then looks at first in, in 1956, he thinks he could make a run at uh, being the Democrats' vice presidential nominee in 1956. It's a a very narrow loss for Kennedy, but he gets national exposure on television, is a very graceful loser in that hunt for the vice presidential nomination. And it's a it's a learning opportunity for Kennedy. Kennedy learns that he can he can deal with the media really well, that he he shows up well on television, and that gives him confidence that he can make a uh, uh, a run for the presidency just four years later in 1960. Is it somewhat surprising that he wanted to be, I always thought it was somewhat surprising. Let me just put it that way, that he would want to be Stevenson's running mate in 56, if only because their chances of prevailing against general Eisenhower in his reelect were so slim. I think he's looking at it as an, an opportunity for exposure. And if he, uh, if the ticket does not prevail, it doesn't reflect so much on him as it does on Stevenson. who was fronting, the ticket. So my guess is it was a pretty good political calculation on the part of Kennedy to seek the nomination. And I'm sure he would have taken it if it were given to him. In 1960, we have one of those seminal presidential elections, 1828, 1860, the list 1800, I suppose we can go on, where sitting vice president Richard Nixon takes on his could we call former friend at this point, uh, John F. Kennedy? They had served together and had somewhat of a of, of a close relationship. Maybe it was closer closer in Nixon's mind than it was in Kennedy's. But I think that didn't Joe Kennedy uh, donate to Nixon's campaign against Helen Hagen Douglas Douglas in 1950? So there were some connections. Talk to us a little bit about the relationship, the friendship between Nixon and Kennedy. Nixon and Kennedy come to Congress in the same year, 1946, and they're both looked upon as comers. Uh, Nixon is uh, five years older than than Kennedy. I make that four years older than Kennedy, uh, but they're both relatively young, and they come to Congress, and both are seen as hopes for their party, uh, representing a brand new generation of young people, what we now call the je- the greatest generation. Uh, and uh, they do become friends. They recognize in each other political talent. And uh, they, they're at one point, they go to West Virginia on a train together to, to do a debate. And uh, I think that they, um, uh, they, they flip a coin for who gets the top bunk in the, in the uh, sleeping quarters on the, on the train or, or, or one of the bunks, but it would it be the top or bottom. I don't remember. And Nixon does win that contest, <laughs> but the, uh, the two become, if not friends, very respectful colleagues, knowing that uh, the other is uh, is a real comer in in his party, is seen as the future, uh, as somebody who's uh, uh, forging the future for for his party. How much difference was it? Maybe this is this is somewhat of a, a question that reflects more on present day politics perhaps, but really when you look at the issues in the 1960 election and the candidates' stances on these issues, 
how much daylight is between them? I mean, I'm not an expert on the election. I've read several books about it, but I mean, it didn't seem like it was, you know, McGovern versus Goldwater here. There seemed to have some, the Venn diagram seemed to be pretty fat in the middle as opposed to what would happen today. Is that fair? No, I think that's very fair. It's not uh, uh, Clinton and Trump. It's not, you know, Carter and Reagan. It, there is uh, there there is not much difference between these these two presidents. In fact, if you listen or watch uh, the the famous Nixon Kennedy presidential debates in 1960s, the first presidential debates ever in the history of our country, you, you'll you'll see that there there isn't a great deal of difference. To your point, Robert, they are pretty, they come down pretty similarly on most of the issues. Bear in mind that as I mentioned earlier, that the dominant concern in America is the Cold War. It's around foreign policy. And both men realize you have to take a hard line on the Soviet Union, first of all, because it's it's politically unwise to do anything but that, but also because there's a real threat uh, of, of communist aggression at that point coming from the Soviet Union and to a lesser extent from China. How did Kennedy... (laughs) And I'm, I, I'm, I try not to be a Republican too much on my podcast, but, you know, sometimes you just can't you can't control yourself. How did Kennedy become president? How did he win that election? And quite frankly, how accurate are the contentions by the Republicans and, and the Nixon supporters that there was widespread or let's say concentrated fraud in Texas and Illinois? I think that's probably a fair, uh, a fair assessment. Nixon and Johnson win by 118,000 votes, two tenths of a percentage point. It is the closest election of the 20th century. That's remarkable. Uh, but they prevail. Uh, there, there are voting irregularities in Cook County in Illinois, the uh, the county that uh, in which sh- Chicago. Falls and in Texas, Texas was uh, is is sort of legendary for uh, uh, for irregularities in elections at that point. Lyndon Johnson was thought to stole steal rather the um, the the uh, senatorial election of of 1948, just as it was stolen from him in 1941. <laughs> right. So Coke Stevenson was, is that? Do I have the name right? Coke Stevenson. Coke Stevenson was 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 uh, LBJ's opponent. In 1948, and uh, and and the election is—I uh, I don't think there's any question that there's <laughs> there's some voting tampering. But by the way, it just meant that uh, LBJ's campaign stole better than Stevenson's campaign. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Stevenson, I think, was the governor, right, or former governor, or something. And former and- governor, Justice <laughs> Pappy O'Daniel, who was the former governor in 1941, or the the, the incumbent governor in 1941, uh, won the Senate election uh, because he stole, again, much better than, than Lyndon Johnson did. So uh, it, it, there's it, there's probably real credence to those claims that there were there were some uh, vote stealing then. That, that said, I don't think you can say that, that that has existed much in our history. I certainly don't buy the claims that that uh, the election was stolen from Trump in, in 2020. Our election system has improved markedly since then. And uh, it's far more sound than it might have been in the days of uh, Richard Nixon and uh, John F. Kennedy. Well, I can 
only slightly add to that. And by saying that for four years, I directed the elections for the city of Indianapolis. You're talking mm, 600, 700,000 registered voters. And for someone to steal an election, quote unquote, is impossible. It just couldn't happen unless you hacked into the computer system and, and changed numbers. And so, so, you know, what your, your point about how much different it is today as compared to then is well taken. One of the, I read a, a book called The Age of Eisenhower. I think William Hitchcock wrote it. I read it last year. And you could tell that it, it got to Eisenhower, this one particular campaign talking point in 1960 that Kennedy hammered home. And that is the missile gap. It's kind of gone down for political historians and, and geeks like me and eventually became the credibility gap in the early 70s with regard to Nixon and various other characters. How was Kennedy able to convince the American public that there was a missile gap when, quite frankly, there wasn't? You're absolutely right, Robert. That is a false claim on the part of John F. Kennedy. John F. Kennedy is using a uh, very effective political tactic, fomenting fear that the Soviet Union has gained an advantage uh, in, in weaponry, in, in the, as I mentioned, at the height of the Cold War. And it allows him to cast blame on the Eisenhower administration, in, in which obviously Richard Nixon plays a part as vice president. So it, it essentially rubs off on Nixon as well, that the Eisenhower-Nixon administration has not kept up with the Soviet Union and they have a weapons advantage over us. That's an enormously effective political tactic for, for John F. Kennedy. And it, it's essentially saying that that Eisenhower and Kennedy have been asleep at the wheel during Eisenhower's two terms as president, and that he will be stronger on on uh, uh, the, the Cold War and uh, and building up our military. That also worked remarkably effectively for Ronald Reagan in 1980 when he was battling the incumbent Jimmy Carter for the White House. If you foment those fears, if you tell people we're falling behind. Uh, and that there is a threat from a uh, potentially uh, truculent nation, uh, the American people will respond. And Kennedy knows this and, and uses that to gain an advantage in the election. I believe Eisenhower was upset because he didn't feel like he could counter it because of national security. So it just kind of sat out there. Um, that, that's absolutely right. And in fact, we had an advantage over the Soviet Union Nine missiles to one. For every <laughs> one missile the Soviet Union had, there were nine that we had. Uh, and, but, but I think it was easy to stoke those fears to some degree, because we have to bear in mind that three years earlier, in 1957, the Soviet Union launched Sputnik, which was the right. first spacecraft, and it orbited the Earth, and we could actually you could actually see it uh, in certain places. And we are really worried that the, the Soviet Union is going to put weapons in space. And that, that essentially becomes the catalyst for our space program, NASA, uh, and to getting astronauts into space and ultimately to the moon. Was, and Kennedy is certainly a champion of that effort. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise and sponsored by... Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, 
Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn. And if you go there, it's the oldest Irish bar in the city of Indianapolis. And there are several pictures of President John F. Kennedy and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest is the author of Incomparable Grace, JFK in the Presidency, Mr. Mark Updegrove, who is the president and CEO of the Lyndon Baines Johnson Foundation. He also serves as presidential historian for ABC News. Let me read another review of Mark's book. In this tremendously absorbing and inviting portrait, Mark Updegrove delivers a warm yet unflinching examination of John Fitzgerald Kennedy. His deep knowledge of the presidency allows him to convey the political complexity of the issues without ever losing the narrative flow. This is an important book that captures the energy, hope, and vision of a young president navigating a potential nuclear confrontation, a gathering storm in Vietnam, and the struggle for justice at home. And that was penned by Pulitzer Prize-winning historian Doris Kearns Goodwin. Much of what happened during the Kennedy administration and the the things that President Kennedy had to both confront and exist within would be about as familiar to us today, especially younger people, as rotary phones. (laughs) The Cold War. Governors, Democrat governors and and governors standing in in, literally standing in schoolhouse doors, the Berlin Wall, the, the, the space race, not the space program, but the space race. Kennedy having to defend yet in an aggressive way his status as a Roman Catholic in your book. How did you bring the reader back to this time and say? All these things are so long ago, we've changed so much, but they were crucial elements of Kennedy's political drive and the person himself. Well, you have to contextualize the times, Robert, and talk about what Americans were, were feeling at that time. We, you talked about the, the Cold War. Again, that is the dominant geopolitical issue. We are divided as a world into two spheres, whether you're on the a communist side, which is represented by the Soviet Union and China, uh, which are both both of uh, which are, are are very aggressive, and the American side. Um, we had our our allies, of course, coming out of World War II, our native NATO allies, uh, but we're we're battling for hearts and minds across the world at that time. Uh, but the the nuclear sabers rattle between the Soviet Union and the United States. So much so that the bulk of Americans, when John F. Kennedy becomes president, believe that that a, a nuclear exchange will happen during their lifetimes. You think about that. I'm old enough to remember duck and cover drills in school, where With alarms were set off. At, well, exactly, exactly. Uh, and and uh, you you would, uh, would would hear an alarm go off, and you were told to get under your desk. And to protect your head. Now, I, I don't think that that would have been effective in the case of a, a nuclear launch, but that's what you were told to do. We remember backyard bomb shelters being built by families 
who would flee to them in the case of a, a nuclear attack. This was very much a part of the, the zeitgeist and the culture of that day. The very fact that the, the aggressive and truculent Soviet Union was coming out to get us, that communism would, would spread like a, a virus, like a, a disease, a cancer across the world and uh, pot- could potentially invade our shores or that a nuclear explosion could happen. It, it, and these were, uh, th- these were as much a part of the times as, um, you know, as, as uh, anything that, that, that would be uh, top of mind for Americans today. Uh, bear in mind, too, that you also had politicians, uh, opportunistic ones, stoking those fears, like John F. Kennedy. The Republicans had done the same thing uh, 12 years earlier when China fell to communism, and Republicans uh, accused Democrats of losing China. That was at a time when Harry Truman was in the White House. So John F. Kennedy was very aware that, that of, of the impression uh, of Democrats as being weak on communism, hence this claim that there is a missile gap that he exploits this, this misinformation about a missile cap, a gap that he exploits to show that he will be the strong one. He will make up for the deficits of the, the Eisenhower-Nixon administration. Probably next to, or maybe right alongside Barack Obama, John F. Kennedy exuded personal charm. How did that help him? We're kind of past the 1960 election in our discussion, but how did that help him as president? Did it and did it help him with regard to dealing with Congress and some of his adversaries? Yeah, you know, and it, the Kennedy charm was considerable, and it helped him enormously. I, you just talked about that narrow victory, uh, Robert, in in uh, 1960, the just two tenths of a percentage point. Uh, but Kennedy comes into the White House and gains the favor very quickly of the American people, partly because of that iconic inauguration speech where he delivers the uh, the uh, indelible line, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Americans begin to rally around Kennedy, so much so that just five days after the inauguration, uh, he gives a, a, a very an ordinary press conference and a third of all Americans tune in his press conferences become must-see TV, and you see the very beguiling and charming John F. Kennedy deal deftly with the press through his knowledge and wit and uh, and sheer charisma. Uh, he is so telegenic, and Kennedy knows that. Kennedy knows he's telegenic. In fact, at one point, he's talking to Ben Bradley uh, in 1959, a couple of years before he throws his hat in the ring for the presidency. Uh, and he calls himself the antithesis of a politician, which is interesting. Uh, but I think he's thinking about figures like his maternal grandfather, Honey Fitz, the very colorful mm-hmm. mayor of Boston, who was the kind of baby kissing, back slapping, name knowing politician that is the archetype. Kennedy is not that. Kennedy is somewhat cool and distant. He's cerebral. He's graceful. Uh, and but yet he knows that he can dominate the dominant uh, medium of the time. Television, television is growing and growing. And, and he, he, Kennedy casts this alluring glow, which is so suitable 
to the television age. And so while he said he was the antithesis of a politician, he also acknowledged that he fit the times. Talking about the press, a couple of years ago, we had on historian Harold Holzer, who I'm sure you know, and we talked about his book, Presidents in the Press. Um, Kennedy handled them wonderfully, but is it fair to say that they were sympathetic as opposed to, say, Ronald Reagan, who I think played the press most of the time like a Stradivarius, and they were not sympathetic to what he was trying to accomplish. How much did Kennedy's worldview help him in dealing with the press? Uh, I think, that, again, we were enmeshed in this Cold War with the Soviets. That was waning by the time that Reagan took office in 1981. And I, I think uh, it, it, you could see the president, Kennedy was uh, had a, an often adversarial relationship with the press, as most presidents do. Kennedy looked at the New York Times and the Washington Post and other newspapers every single morning. It was the first thing he did. And he read with great interest how the, the, the press was covering his administration because he knew the power, the power of image. Uh, and he did try to play the press, but when it didn't go his way, way he could be pretty thin-skinned. Lyndon Johnson, his running mate, once said uh, when he was president, if I walked across the Potomac, the headline in the next morning's Washington Post would read, President Can't Swim. <laughs> and so, but I, I, was the press favorable to Kennedy? The answer is probably yes. He did beguile them. He did charm the press just as he did the American people. One thing, and you don't flinch from this in your book, and it's become a bit of a fascination among people who study this time period, and that is the president's extramarital activity. How did you approach it in your book? And why do you think, as Ben Bradley flat out admitted, they protected him, the media protected him on this issue and didn't expose what he was up to, even though they knew it? Or claim well, to know that, it. Sure. Uh, there, there, there was a code in the media at that time, which is that it, it, you didn't cover a politician's womanizing or drinking if it didn't affect their duties to discharge the office that they held. Walter Cronkite, I quoted in my book, is saying just that. Ben Bradley claims that he didn't know that Kennedy was womanizing. My guess is that Ben Bradley might have been one of the few in the press corps who really did because he had a, a very deep personal relationship with, with Kennedy. Uh, but I, 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 and my guess is it, it might have been a little self-serving for him to say he didn't know because the, the Newsweek, which he was working for at the time, didn't didn't cover it. So, I, I, again, I, I don't think it was it was considered fair ground for the media to go after uh, politicians on that on that uh, basis at that time. That would change later. I mean, that, that changed with Gary Hart. He challenged the, the press to, to follow him and to see if he was having put a stake, put a stake out on me, put a stake out. Exactly. On me. Which which is precisely what they did. The Miami Herald but, did. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. Which which led to his demise. And then we see what happens when when Bill Clinton is womanizing in the, the White House and it leads to. Uh, the a major black mark on his record, but yeah, I listen. You you have to put it in the context of the times, which I hope I did, Robert. Um, 
it was very much part of the Washington zeitgeist to, to have extramarital affairs. Uh, I talked to Gerald Ford about this one time, and he said that most of the people he knew in Congress were having illicit or open affairs. Uh, it, was, um, it was almost uh, accepted in some respects. Uh, and we also have to bear in mind that Kennedy uh, learns about this from the, the feet of the master. His father is a world-class philanderer, has a, an open relationship in Hollywood with Gloria Swanson, one of the stars of the day. I think the Kennedys, this the testosterone-filled Kennedy household, um, you know, was uh, uh, the, the Kennedys almost used womanizing as keeping score, a way of competing with each other. Uh, they were so competitive. But there's one thing you simply cannot forgive John Kennedy for, and that's the way in, in particular that he treats a White House intern named Mimi Beardsley, who comes to the White House at the age of 19, loses her virginity to Kennedy a week later, and is really objectified by the president of the United States in ways that I just simply can't fathom. Is this uh, so a pool, I, swimming pool incident? Well, it's 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 a, an incident where there are many. Uh, Kennedy takes uh, Mimi Beardsley with him when he goes away. He sequesters her in hotel rooms and has her wait for him if he wants to have a tryst. He also asks her to perform a sexual act on one of his aides. I mean, you simply can't excuse this. This is absolutely abominable behavior from the president of the United States. Uh, there are you know prostitutes that come into the White House who who are uh, retained for, for Kennedy. Uh, th- that's a slightly different matter. It's, it's, a, it's a horrible thing, but it's a business arrangement. But the exploitation and objectification of this White House intern is, is uh, just simply unforgivable. Speaking of unforgivable, when we talk about such things, we can never leave off the wife, the spouse. Jackie Kennedy the most consequential first lady in American history? Yes or no? No, no. She's a very, certainly an important uh, first lady without question for a variety of reasons. She's, she's definitely a compliment to her husband in terms of the graceful, elegant image that she casts, uh, not only here in, uh, in the United States, but abroad when it becomes very important. But I, I wouldn't call her the most consequential First Lady, I think you'd have to look at uh, Eleanor Roosevelt, Eleanor Roosevelt uh, in, in my view. Even Lady Bird, uh, even Lady Bird Johnson, Lady, what she did for conservation and beautification is, is not talked about enough. Absolutely. Rosalind Carter becomes a force in the Carter presidency, perhaps, uh, you know, the second most important person in Washington at that time. As many people said, you have Hillary Clinton, uh, who is uh, an enormous asset to her husband, and, and I think his chief advisor, just as Lady Bird and Rosalind were to their husbands as, as president. So you'd have to look at different folks, but but there's no question that Jan, Jackie Kennedy makes her mark as first lady and is a great asset to her husband and to our nation. We should also mention, and I can remember this, uh, Betty Ford, who was honest about her alcoholism and and her cancer surgery, her cancer fight, which was pretty much unheard of before then. That's dead right, and and that's an addition I, I would make to that list as well, Robert. She is a an enormously important first lady for for, for being as open as you suggest 
as she was about those those medical issues and at later about her alcoholism and uh, and the treatment that she underwent in order to combat it. You're listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest is historian Mark Updegrove. We are discussing his new book, Incomparable Grace, JFK in the Presidency. We have a few minutes left. I asked you a few minutes ago to grade the president on certain things. And I asked a follow-up question. Did anyone get Vietnam right? Did anyone get a passing grade? But when it comes to the civil rights movement of the late 50s and the 60s, how, why did these presidents, and I know you know about all three I'm going to mention, Eisenhower, Kennedy, Johnson, how did they handle civil rights? And why, it always seems to me, at least until Johnson comes on, that, 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 that Eisenhower and Kennedy were willing to do, were willing to take one step, but they weren't willing to take two steps. Or they did something publicly, but privately they almost undermined it. Why was this such a difficult issue for these presidents? And of course, maybe focus on President Kennedy. You know, because it wasn't popular uh, to take a stand on civil rights. It wasn't politically wise to do so. And so both Eisenhower and Kennedy, at least in the uh, early years of his presidency, react to civil rights rather than act on civil rights. JFK is associated with the, the fruition of civil rights and would later become an icon in the black community after his assassination. But while Kennedy intervened in the release of Martin Luther King from a potentially fatal stay in a rural Georgia prison in his presidential campaign of 1960 and would go on to win the majority of the black vote, his commitment to civil rights was slow in revealing itself as president. The majority of Americans didn't see the urgency in pushing civil rights, and neither did Kennedy nor Eisenhower, who were far more interested in foreign policy and saw the civil rights movement's exposure to the ravages of racial prejudice as tarnishing America's image abroad as we battled for the moral high ground in the Cold War. It was hard to say that we were a better system when we were subjugating a, a large swath of our population. So, so as I mentioned, Kennedy didn't act on civil rights as much as he reacted, though he finally stepped up on civil rights by calling uh, civil rights a moral issue and proposing the Civil Rights Act, banning, banning racial segregation. He exercised little political muscle in attempting to pass the bill, which had languished upon his assassination. So you can give Kennedy credit for addressing the American public and elevating it to a moral issue, which becomes an inflection point in the civil rights movement. But you could fault him for not being as aggressive as he might have been in the cause of, of racial justice. And that, the point you made is one that I've read in several books, and that is the importance of the civil rights movement in the context of the Cold War struggle, especially the rhetorical struggle against the authoritarian communist Eastern Bloc. Did that affect, did that help catalyze Kennedy's movement on these issues that, to your point, we're talking about, you know, what happens in Hungary in 1956 and, you know, the Soviet Union, the Hungarians can go, well, look what happened in Selma. Look what happened in Montgomery. Look what happened in Birmingham. Absolutely right, Robert. Every time we tell the Soviet Union we're a better system, they can point to the systemic injustice racially that, that plays out throughout America, and particularly in the, in the Deep South. But I think what 
The reason that Kennedy finally takes a stand in 1963 is partly because of the the direct action campaign by the civil rights movement led by Martin Luther King in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, Many of us can can conjure up images of gnashing dogs, German shepherds, lunging at civil rights protesters and uh, protesters being uh, pinned against walls by weaponized fire hoses. And those are really powerful images that appear on newspaper front pages across the country and across the world. Uh, At the same time, you have Martin Luther King going to jail, being incarcerated in Birmingham and penning the the very seminal letter from a Birmingham jail talking about why civil rights are important now. He's being counseled by clergymen to be patient. And he tells him, he he gives a very um, uh, eloquent statement about why Black people should not be patient. The time for civil rights is now. So Kennedy is starting to get worn down by the civil rights movement, which gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And finally, things come to a head for Kennedy when George Wallace, the segregationist governor of the state of Alabama, literally stands in the schoolhouse door at the University of Alabama to prevent its integration. Uh, Kennedy sees that this demagogue is going to go on TV and exploit that for his own political gain and decides to preempt him by by making a national address on civil rights that same evening. He doesn't have enough time to for a speechwriter to craft a speech, but Bobby Kennedy, his closest advisor, his brother, urges him to do the speech anyway, uh, to speak from his heart extemporaneously about the, the, uh, the, the quest for civil rights. And again, Kennedy elevates it to a moral issue, and, and that becomes an important crossroads in, in the fight for civil rights in our nation. Of all the programs, not events, but programs and initiatives, maybe I guess we should throw in the Peace Corps. So I'm going to, I'm going to qualify my own question. So forgive me, Mark. Were any of them more personally influenced and accelerated more than what John F. Kennedy did for the space program? I think that's a great example, Robert, of the impact that John F. Kennedy really did make. NASA was launched in the wake of the uh, the launch of uh, of Sputnik uh, by Dwight Eisenhower in 1957, but our space program really wasn't going anywhere. Um, it was pretty weak uh, relative to the Soviet Union, and, and John F. Kennedy realizes that it needs to be galvanized, and that Americans need to understand why it's important to to spend time and resources and money on the space program in order to get ahead of the Soviet Union, and he, so he goes to Rice University, and he gives this rousing speech in which he says, we choose to go to to the moon and and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. And he, he, he makes the quest for the moon almost a uniquely American proposition, why we as Americans are meant to do this and what it's going to mean to us. And again, that gives a shot in the arm to the fledgling space program. And this is after the time when Kennedy talks about the fact that we're going to put a man on the moon by the end of the decade. That was a preposterous notion in some respects. 
almost like saying today that we were going to put a paper plane on Mars uh, because our space program was uh, was was uh, not doing it was languishing again, particularly relative to what the Soviets were doing at that time. But Kennedy makes that claim. Americans rally around him. And as we all know, we end up putting men on the moon in June of 1969, right before the end of the 1960s. A past guest on the Leaders and Legends program and someone I, I quite frankly, still to this day, can't believe I got to talk to for about an hour and a half is Secret Service agent Clint Hill. He came on the podcast and we had a, a strong discussion, not only about his career, but obviously November 22nd, 1963. As a historian, how do you approach that day and its aftermath? And, and what were your conclusions? You know, I don't deal much with uh, November 22nd, 1963 in the book, except to say that Kennedy was shot and and ends up dying shortly thereafter. I, you know, I, I was the director of the LBJ Presidential Library for for eight years, and um, and saw the the records of the Kennedy assassination that are housed in the in the library. And I've also done interviews with many of the people who were there that day. I, I interviewed Gerald Ford, as I mentioned earlier, who was the lone surviving member at the time of our interview of the, the Warren Commission, which was the blue ribbon bipartisan a group that looked into the Kennedy assassination and rendered their conclusions. I, I, have, I will quote Gerald Ford, who said he never uh, discounted the notion that there, that, that there could have been a conspiracy, but he saw no evidence that it was anything other than a lone gunman who perpetrated the, the crime. And I subscribe to that notion as well. I, I, I think that's where I stand. Conspiracies are very hard to keep uh, secret. It would take a lot of people to, to keep secret a plot as big as the, the murder of the 35th uh, president of the United States. And I've never seen anything that's credible and compelling that would lead me to believe that it was anything other than a lone assassin uh, Lee Harvey Oswald, who was deranged, this loner uh, who had a, a history of erratic behavior and was psychotic, uh, who was the actual assassination. I, I just don't see any reason to go any further than that. And I've, I've read material recently by those by somebody who knew Lee Harvey Oswald, who said he had no doubt that Oswald was capable of uh, a, a, an act that horrific. And as Clint Hill said on the podcast, he had all the advantages that day. He did indeed. Yeah, he did indeed. Uh, the, the conditions were ripe for something like that happening. And unfortunately, uh, it happened in worldview. I think it was 1962. Maybe it was, uh, correct me, when Kennedy friend and his famous historian, Arthur Schlesinger, came up with the ranking he and other historians, they ranked the presidents, maybe the first time. And there have been several rankings, obviously, who knows how many since then. But as a, but as a, as a presidential historian, uh, Mark, would you place John F. Kennedy in the top 10 of all American presidents? Uh, I would and I did. Uh, the the C-SPAN does a, a poll every time there is a change in administration. And so the last poll was done. 
uh, when when Donald Trump left office. Uh, and uh, I did put Kennedy in, in the top 10. I, I would put him at the uh, toward the, the latter end of the, that top 10. I don't think he's in the pantheon that is reserved for our greatest presidents, George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, uh, and uh, and Franklin Roosevelt. But I'd put him at, at about nine or 10. I think uh, Kennedy had, had great potential at the very end of his presidency. And, and he's often giving credit for the potential that he had. I don't think that's right. You have to judge him on right. the, the record that he showed as president. But he did um, show us, the, uh, get us believing in something beyond ourselves. He got our, our, our nation rallied uh, around each other. Uh, he saw a peaceful end to the, the, the Cuban Missile Crisis. As I mentioned, Robert, perhaps the most dangerous moment in humankind. And there's a there's a quote from Clement Attlee who says that um, who said of of Winston Churchill Clement Attlee was a, a a successor to Winston Churchill and he said of Churchill's gift for oratory during the Second World War um, words at great moments can be deeds and while uh, there there isn't a great legislative record for John F Kennedy the words that he says at crucial moments in his presidency become deeds. We just talked about uh, the, the we choose to go to the moon speech at Rice University and how that gives a boost to our fledgling space program. Uh, we talked about the, the, the address that he makes on civil rights, calling it a moral issue. We talked about the ask not rhetoric of his inauguration address, but there's also the Ich bin ein Berliner speech that he makes at the foot of the Berlin Wall showing the symbol of of uh, Soviet authoritarianism and and tyranny, and saying that all men, if they are free, are citizens of Berlin, and therefore I say, uh, ich bin ein Berliner, uh, that he too is a citizen of Berlin. These become really important moments. Uh, in addition to that, at the the speech that he makes at American University, essentially extending an olive branch to the Soviet Union in the hopes of signing the nuclear test ban treaty, mitigating the threat of, of nuclear uh, fallout and, um, and, and damage. And, uh, and, and I think you have to give John F. Kennedy relatively high marks. And you have, you know, in the, in the chronology of these things, you know, there's 17, 18, you know, 16, 17, 18 years after world war two. So Kennedy says, you know, I, too, am a Berliner. And, you know, 17, 18 years earlier, the United States was obliterating Berlin. I mean, that's how quickly things can change. If this is a question, it's slightly off topic, but I've I've thought of it when I first uh, we first started to discuss about you coming on the Leaders and Legends podcast. So forgive me for this one. What do you think John F. Kennedy would have thought of Watergate? I don't think it would have surprised him. <laughs> he knew Nixon and, and saw deficits in, in Nixon's character. Uh, I think he would have been uh, concerned with the abuse of power. Um, Kennedy perhaps did some things that uh, that we would look askance at today, but I, I think he would be deeply concerned about the abuse, abuse of power by Nixon. Uh, you know, again, you talked about the Nixon-Kennedy relationship and Kennedy, Nixon talked about it often. I think he almost wanted to, to bathe in the Camelot glow. And since he came so close to defeating 
uh, John F. Kennedy in 1960. It almost became a, a badge of honor for him, but but the two were were certainly not close friends. And uh, Kennedy, at certain points, uh, uh, talks about uh, Nixon's flawed character. So I don't think it would have surprised him, Robert. As I recall, the comment was no class. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Which summed up John F. Kennedy's uh, uh, assessment of uh, of uh, Richard Nixon. We have reached the point in the Leaders and Legends podcast where we ask the same five questions of all of our guests. Mark up to Grove. Are you ready? They're harmless. I promise. I am indeed. I am indeed. Even though they're a couple of them are particularly difficult for historians. So, number one, what was your first job? You know what? My first job was probably hustling lawns in the Philadelphia suburbs. I would I would mow people's lawns. I'd take my lawn boy lawnmower, knock on doors, and ask people if they wanted their lawn mowed. You cross the Delaware River and mow my family's grass. Uh, they're from Camden. Oh, there you go. There you go. I wish I'd known. I could have gotten more business. <laughs> Number two, what was your first concert? Oh, well, this is a good one. Uh, my first concert was Bruce Springsteen at the Tower Theater in Philadelphia. Now, this is before Springsteen had launched Born to Run, which would put him on the covers of Time and Newsweek simultaneously, this unknown musician named Bruce Springsteen. But Philadelphia radio stations were fabulous at that time, and they had almost adopted Bruce Springsteen. He was from neighboring New Jersey. And so as a young kid, I, I loved Bruce Springsteen well before he became popular. I saw him at the Tower Theater performing uh, music from his first two albums and the upcoming, but not yet released Born to Run album. So that was hard to top. Agreed. Number three, if you could suggest any book for someone to read, which book would you recommend? Now, it can't be mine. Is that right, Robert? Well, no, we're, <laughs> we're humble people, but yes, we agree. <laughs> you know, I, I would probably, I, I'd have to say, uh, I would look at one of the classic books. And for me, I think because it's so important um, to understand the issue of race in our nation, To Kill a Mockingbird would be my choice. Number four, if you could witness any event in history, be there in person as it happens, which event would you choose? Well, probably sitting in on the uh, uh, the, the Continental Congress when the Declaration of Independence is hammered out. I mean, how can you not want to want to hear what's going on in the, in the minds of our founding fathers as they're plotting their independence from Great Britain? Last question, and this is maybe a little different for you because you've you've probably had dinner with so many amazing people. But if you could have dinner with anyone living today, living today, two hours off the record, just to chat, whom would you choose? You know, I have to tell you, I have been so lucky in the people that I've had dinner with. I've, I've hosted, um, I've hosted six presidents, uh, and have been very lucky to interview seven. I would say, at this moment in time, it would be, have to be Vladimir Zelensky. I think what he has done it in in showing Churchillian resolve in fending off this Russian invasion is nothing less than heroic. I would be shocked if Time Magazine, for whom I once worked, uh, didn't name him its its person of the year at the end of the year. And I think he will be uh, heralded as one of the heroes of our time. 
You have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest today has been Mark Updegrove. He is the president and CEO of the LBJ Foundation. He also serves as presidential historian for ABC News. He must have got hired instead of me. Mr. Updegrove is the author of five books on the presidency, including the one we have been discussing, Incomparable Grace, JFK in the Presidency. Mark, as I said before we started the podcast, you are living the life that I am incredibly jealous of. You get to meet all these amazing people. You've written terrific books, and we just love your work, and we're very, very grateful for your time today. Well, Robert, I got to meet you today, which makes it a pretty good day for me. So this has been a delight. Thanks so much for having me on the podcast. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Thank you.